0: Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official pop pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis XIV. And I'm so glad to have you back for another episode. Let me run down some housekeeping things really fast before we get into it today. This is the final call for mailbag questions. You can send them to us at poppantheonpod at gmail.com. They can be voice notes. They can be written. They can be about pop pantheon. They can be about pop music in general. They can be questions about ratings, whatever you guys want. Send us your questions. This is the last call for alcohol. For the mailbag episode, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. Please follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod and me at DJLOUIEXIV on both Twitter and Instagram. Hop in our Discord channel, the link for which will be in the show notes of this episode and will also be on our social channels. Check out the Spotify playlist for this and every episode on both social media and in the show notes of this episode. And... Guys, I am so excited to see everybody with their niche legend Pop Pantheon dad hats. So many people bought them, we're so excited. This is the first time that we've ever like, had this sort of exchange with our audience before, where we have put something up for sale, whatever. It's been so amazing to see so many people buying the hats. Get yours, they're so adorable, and I wanna see pictures of everybody in them. If you get your hat and you get it in the mail, tweet out or Instagram a picture of you in the hat and tag us, please, so that I can see them and share them with everybody. I am so touched by everybody that's been buying Our little merch. I'm so proud of us for doing that. And I'm so happy that people are enjoying it so much. So the Pop Pantheon Niche Legend Dad Hat is available on our website, poppantheonpod.com in the shop section. So go get yours today. I also want to announce that we are doing a listener survey. We want to learn a little bit more about how you guys are interfacing with the show just a few specific questions just about what you think about it, a certain aspects of it, who you are, et cetera, et cetera, just so that we can help continue to tailor the show to your interests. So we are listing that survey at our website as well. poppantheonpod.com. I will put it in the show notes here. I will also post it on social media. So if you have three minutes or whatever, I'd really appreciate it if you would take a second to fill out that survey so that we can help continuing to serve you the kind of content that you want on this show. Of course, Gorgeous Gorgeous, My New Party in Los Angeles is happening on September 23rd. That is a Friday. So come see me DJ all your favorite pop songs in downtown LA. The links for tickets will be in all the same places I'm saying for everything else, which is the show notes and on social media, so please come see me at Gorgeous Gorgeous. And before we get into this week's episode, I also just want to say that last week's episode serves as a bit of a sort of part one prelude to this. This episode is, of course, about the legendary disco queen Donna Summer, and I really feel strongly that you'll get the most out of this episode if you go back first and listen to our episode just about disco more generally and what the movement was about and the music was about, which was our B-side last week. So you don't have to, obviously, it's a free country, but I would recommend. And pausing this and going back and listening to that first before we get into this week's episode. But without further ado, here is our episode on the Queen of Disco herself, Donna Summer. What happens to your legacy when the entire movement that you defined becomes derided, a joke, persona non grata in popular culture? And then what happens to it when that movement is perhaps, some 40 years later, finally getting its due? Indeed, the legacy of the great Donna Summer has been on a bit of a roller coaster over the last four decades, partially for reasons within her control, but often for ones wholly outside of it. As we as a society reckon with disco and namely the racist and homophobic ways in which we tanked this glorious genre in the early 1980s, ruining the careers of so many artists, largely from minority communities, who never recovered, and how we've subsequently come to revive it again and again through the ensuing years, making it one of the most enduring and evergreen pop subgenres. It's increasingly clear that Donna Summer, the so-called queen of disco herself, was not only one of the greatest hitmakers in pop music history, crafting a series of songs through the mid to late 70s that provided the foundations for modern pop music. But even more so, Donna, her music, her image, her voice, have proven to be an integral part of the fabric of capital P Pop as a concept in the way we think of it today, evident in ways big and small in almost all the pop music and stars that have come after her. I certainly don't think you could tell the story of popular music even in the broadest of strokes without mentioning her name and as such she and the genre for which she was the poster child are not only to be celebrated but should be studied by any pop fan who wants to look under the hood at what makes pop tick donna summer is that important LaDonna Adrian Gaines was born in December 1948, the third of seven children, to a butcher and a school teacher in Boston, Massachusetts. She learned to sing where else but in church at a very young age, and was noted not only for her talent as a vocalist, but also her eccentricity and desire to break the mold. LaDonna left home for New York City and immediately began fronting a rock band, The Crow, and while there in 1968, auditioned for a role in the red-hot counterculture musical Hair, landing the role of Sheila in the Munich production and, with reluctant approval from her family, packing her bags and moving to Germany, where she ended up spending the late 60s and early 70s acting in a number of other German adaptations of American musicals and continuing to pursue a solo music career, landing one-off single deals that ultimately failed to make her a star. She also married and had a child with the Austrian actor Helmuth Sommer, and used his last name to create her nom de guerre, Donna Sommer. Everything changed for Donna one night when, while recording backing vocals for another artist at Musicland Studios in Munich, she met its founder, the producer Giorgio Moroder and his partner Pete Bellatte. and the trio instantly hit it off, with Moroder and Bellate immediately clocking her effervescent star quality and powerful, dynamic singing voice. Moroder and Bellate signed Summer to their label, and the trio released her debut album Lady of the Night in 1974. Largely a pop-rock folk album, the record spun off some hits in various European marketplaces, but did not constitute a huge breakthrough for Summer. That didn't come until 1975, when Marauder suggested the trio attempt a disco song, then the hot new pop music trend in the US, and Summer suggested it be a sexy disco song. The result was music history, a slinky, lush throbber of a dance track in which Donna's powerhouse voice was reduced to a moan. The record was called Love to Love You, and the three-minute version of the track became a minor hit in Europe, leading Marauder to send it to Neil Bogart, head honcho of Casablanca Records in the US, who loved it and wanted more. 13 minutes more, to be exact. At Bogart's behest, Marauder, Bilate, and Summer went back to the studio to expand the track into the canonical version, renamed Love to Love You Baby, an orgasmic nearly 17-minute epic that forever changed the face of popular music and representations of black female sexuality within it. This version became an utter lightning rod of controversy for its overt displays of female sexuality and, subsequently, an absolute smash in the United States, peaking at number. Two on the Hot 100, adding major jet fuel to disco's rise in the pop ecosystem and making Donna Summer the face of the genre overnight. Now heavily associated with disco, Summer, Marauder, and Bilate went to work on a series of ambitious concept albums through the mid-1970s, which reveled in the excesses of the genre and Donna's place within it. There was 1976's A Love Trilogy and Four Seasons of Love, both of which expanded on the luxurious aesthetics of Love to Love You Baby while continuing to play with the salacious coup Donna had coined on the infamous track, but were only moderate successes on both the albums and singles charts. But to call what came next a significant breakthrough would be a gross understatement. For 1977's I Remember Yesterday, Marauder, Bolate, and Summer conceived of a record that would explore the history of American pop through the decades and that would contain a final track which would posit the sound of music's future. Somewhat of an afterthought when they originally recorded it, the track came together almost as a fluke, with maroder playing around with a Moog synthesizer and a then-novel use of a delay, causing a sort of ping-ponging echo and a strobing effect to pulse through the production. maroder liked the sound so much that in order to properly feature it, he finished the track entirely save for one kick drum noise using only machines, entirely novel for the time. Donna then recorded her vocals, a riff on the warm, ethereal lilt which had become her signature, in one take the result was i feel love for all intents and purposes the first electronic dance music song a record which single-handedly changed the course of recorded music history i feel love topped the charts across the world hitting number six here in america and not only cemented donna summer as the queen of disco but the seismic innovations of which also secured her place in the annals of pop music history forever I Feel Love sent Donna on a rocket both through the end of the 1970s and the peak of disco's chokehold on American culture. She had smash hits with 1978's luscious Last Dance, which also featured in the movie Thank God It's Friday, in which she starred, and her cover of MacArthur Park, which hit number one that same year. Prescient of the coming of MTV a few years later, Donna's stardom turned not only on her state-of-the-art music and consummate inventive and virtuosic vocal performances, but also on her fizzy and understated charm, and importantly, her glamorous image and personal style with her signature big hair and elegant sequined outfits evident on everything from album covers to appearances on late night TV shows. Donna personified disco not just as a musical form, but as a culture and visual aesthetic, helping to form a more 360 degree version of pop stardom which would define the 1980s and beyond. Both Donna and Disco reached their respective zeniths completely intertwined with one another with her 1979 magnum opus, Bad Girls, one of Disco's definitive releases and one of pop's greatest ever full lengths. Here, Summer, Marauder, and Ballate's ambition reached its logical endpoint, creating a series of interconnected suites including plenty of lavish Disco, but also elements of rock, R&B, country, and more in many ways bad girls was the thriller before thriller a hit parade that set the template for the modern pop event album and the hits really do speak for themselves the number two peaking dim all the lights and the signature pair of number ones the effortlessly seductive title track and the shredding heavy metal come disco anthem hot stuff Summer's imperial run through the waning days of the 1970s continued with the one-off number one singles on the radio and the classic Barbra Streisand duet, No More Tears, Enough is Enough. But just as the massive backlash to disco was fomenting at the turn of the 1980s, so too were Donna's feelings of being confined by the genre. In 1980, she released the much more rock-oriented The Wanderer, Also, her final collaboration released with Marauder and Bellate, which sold about a fourth of what Bad Girls had the year prior. She followed this up with 1982's Quincy Jones-produced self-titled record, which fared similarly. Summer had a significant comeback in 1983 with her new wave hit She Works Hard for the Money, but this proved to be the end of Donna's run as one of pop's greatest ever hitmakers. While she continued to release music throughout the 1980s and was able to capture a few minor lark hits, Summer was never again able to reach the magic she'd experienced during the peak of disco, owing perhaps in large part to the undue stink the term had gathered in the ensuing decades and how tethered she was to the movement. Donna Summer released music only sporadically through the 90s and 2000s, and died tragically from lung cancer in 2012 at the age of 63. But in the last 20 years, her legacy and stature as the pop music innovator that she was has grown significantly, culminating with her posthumous induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2013. Donna Summer charted 32 songs on the Hot 100, which included 14 top tens and four number ones. She was the first artist in history to have three consecutive double albums hit the top of the Billboard 200 chart, and the first to chart four number one singles within a 12-month period. She has sold over 100 million records worldwide, making her one of the best-selling musical artists of all time, has won five Grammy awards, and is widely cited and noted by artists as wide-ranging as the Pet Shop Boys, Daft Punk, and Beyonce as a primary influence on their sounds and images. Here with me to discuss the career and legacy of the legendary donna summer is author of shine bright a very personal history of black women in pop and host of the podcast black girl songbook danielle smith okay so i am here with the author of shine bright a very personal history of black women in pop and the host of the fantastic podcast for the ringer black girl songbook it's danielle smith danielle welcome to pop pantheon
1: Man, I'm so excited to be here. I cannot tell you. Super excited to be here.
0: I'm so excited to have you because your book is absolutely beautiful. I just have to say before we get into the conversation, it's this incredible history of Black women in pop, but as told through kind of your personal story. And it's so well written. It's so informative. It's touching. It's doing a really important job, which is obviously elevating the fact that Black women have been the basic foundation of pop music for the entirety of its history. True. And you do such an incredible job of laying that out. So I know listeners of this podcast are fans of you already. But if you haven't gotten this book or checked out Danielle's podcast, I highly, highly recommend that to everyone.
1: I appreciate that so much. I really do. It was a labor of love. It was a labor, but it was a labor <laughs> of love to create uh, Shine Bright and also to be doing Songbook. So I really appreciate the love and encouragement. It matters the most.
0: Of course. And I'm also thrilled to have you here to talk about a woman that I think is utterly foundational to our modern conception of what pop stardom is. I talk a lot about on the podcast how sort of the way we think about pop stars as icons today began in the early 1980s. We sort of think about Michael, Prince, Madonna, Janet Jackson. These are kind of the modern video era pop figures that we reference a lot when we're thinking about icons of the genre. The 80s was a huge turning point for that. But as I was going back through Donna's music in preparation for this and what her career was like, she is so incredibly foundational to all of those artists. If we're thinking of the 1980s as this sort of inception point for modern pop stardom, Donna Summer to me feels like you don't have any of those artists without having Donna Summer first as grounds for them to stand on.
1: Well, you're not going to get much of an artist argument for me about that (laughs) especially because I think for some reason she's often forgotten and overlooked Mm. and it bothers me kind of personally but more than it bothers me personally it bothers me just because the achievement the data the data it's so loud yeah you know what I mean it's so profound when you just start Mm -hmm. talking about number of records sold when you talk about the double albums that she created that went to number one like these are things that it's not just about her having achieved them as a black woman or as a woman, but just in terms of being a pop artist in this world. These are massive achievements and achievements that other people really haven't even touched.
0: I completely agree. And I love how you said, I think on your show, you described her as enchanting, dazzling, and she kept us spellbound. All of Donna's music is gospel-based rhythm and blues with Broadway bombast and soaring bravery. It takes big bravery to be a black woman pop star and Donna is one of our biggest. When you say it takes bravery to be a black woman pop star, what do exactly do you mean by that?
1: What exactly do I mean by that? I mean, sometimes I think it takes bravery to be a black woman and walk down the street, but that's a yes. conversation for another podcast. <laughs> but um, I think because black women pop stars are so often immediately rejected
2: mm.
1: by critics, especially even as mm. they are uplifted by the masses. I mean, if you just think about the life of Whitney Houston, everyone thinks about, oh my God, Whitney was so huge. She had so many hits. Everyone loved her. And then, you know, there was a downward spiral, but now that she's gone, we just lift her up as a genius. Well, when Whitney came out, she wasn't even invited Mm -hmm. to MTV or to pop radio. She had to do a thing that black artists like Michael Jackson, like Lionel Richie, like Mariah Carey Mm -hmm. had to do in that era, which is basically trot around to the big pop stations around the country and pitch yourself and say, hi, I'm Whitney Houston, and I know that you guys don't usually play black music,
2: mm.
1: but just listen to my music and see that it's different and that you can play it. And then there's the whole thing of Whitney being called like Whitey Houston when she yeah. first came out. There was a the whole thing of Donna Summer of people saying to her, you know, and it bothered her throughout her life that your music is soulless, Donna. Mm. Your music is not real music. Donna, Mm -hmm. even as she reigned the charts. I mean, how must that have messed with her head? So it does take some bravery, I think, to keep going.
0: Absolutely. And as you mentioned, there is a sort of systematic overlooking of Black female pop stars and their achievements. I mean, when you're talking, I can't help but think about Janet, who has one of the largest footprints in pop history, is in many ways the blueprint for pretty much every pop star, especially female pop star, has come after her and continues to this day to struggle to sort of achieve the same respect that a Madonna does or her her legacy looked at in the same way that even her brother does. And it's always fascinated me with her because she's probably my all-time favorite, so I'm always thinking about her, but just how few people in a casual way today understand the impact. I mean, she was the biggest that there was and the most influential that there was, and yet. I feel like in retrospect, she still is struggling somehow to achieve that level of respect. And I think Donna, as you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, also fits into that category as well. Someone that people need to be reminded of because culture isn't reminding them enough of the level of impact and influence that they had in their moment.
1: It's very true. I think that Janet is like, if you were around, if you were anywhere from the age of 9 to 19 Mm -hmm. over the course of Janet Jackson's rise, she is like tattooed on your soul. Oh my god. Like, I mean and talk
0: <laughs> about a track record, talk about like the hits Ooh. to back it up. I mean, I was watching her Essence Fest performance the other day and I yeah. was like, she can barely pack these in. Like she she can't, she she can't, can't. even get them she all can't. in.
1: She can't. She can't. She can't. She has to break out into medley at some point <laughs> yes. because yes. you know what I mean, it's going to be a day-long concert just featuring her. Mm-hmm. And if you are around too, to know, you talk about bravery. You yeah. talk about a woman who said, "You know what? My brother is literally the king of pop. Mm -hmm. He literally has 8 trillion billion hits and has sold 8 (laughs) trillion billion songs and albums and he's got a ride at amusement parks (laughs) and... He's laying in oxygen chambers, and she said to herself, but you know what? I'm going to go for it anyway. Yeah. And if you were around for the moments when she actually did, and I grew up with the Jackson Five and the Jacksons, Mm -hmm. if you were around for the moments when she began to eclipse her brother... Mm -hmm. Oh my God, talk about bravery.
0: Oh my God. It's astounding that it happened. It's Mm -hmm. really a feat. And I just think in talking about Janet, just on an artistic level, you cannot overlook the influence that Donna Summer had on Janet as the way she presents herself as a pop star, the way she sings, the way she approaches her music. So much of that is rooted in a lot of innovations that Donna had. And the other thing that Donna, I think, maybe struggles extra with, which is kind of how I want to kick off this conversation, is being tied to the legacy of disco music, which also is unfairly maligned and dismissed by a lot of the rock critical establishment. You talk about that a lot on your episode on her on your show, which is that Donna Summer, not only was she a black woman operating in an environment that can be hostile to black women, but also she was operating in a genre that essentially was accepted into culture for maybe three, four, five years, and then essentially was like thrown out and tossed out by mainstream culture. And that probably has also had a profound effect on her legacy in retrospect.
1: If we lived in a right world, the way Donna Summer's legacy has been done would be a literal crime. Mm. This the whole idea to me, even of the label disco,
2: Mm.
1: which is something that I really only use because it's the language of the culture. I don't really believe in disco as... Anything other than some of the best rhythm and blues that has ever been released. Mm. I think it would be very hard for mainstream critics to just come out and say, we reject rhythm and blues and everything it stands for. As a matter of fact, rhythm and blues sucks. And we're going to make t-shirts that say rhythm and blues sucks. Mm -hmm. Because basically then what you're saying at that moment in the 70s, coming right out of the civil rights movement, is that black music is awful and fake and Mm. it sucks. Mm-hmm. So you almost had to call it something else. You almost had to call it something else even to make conversation about it palatable.
2: Mm.
1: And the way that that disco sucks. Movement was organized and violent, both on the radio and in real life. The big famous thing is the thing that happened at the Chicago baseball park. Disco sucks. Disco demolition night. Yes, my God, Mm -hmm. where, you know, so many rock DJs and rock staffers, rock radio staffers around the country were so upset because rock was going into, at that point, a period of decline that, frankly, Mm -hmm. it hasn't risen from even... (laughs) (laughs) To this day, shout out to Nirvana and everybody else who tried their best. They tried their best, (laughs) but were also rejected. But were also, to some degree, rejected by mainstream yes. rock critics. But yeah, it was just so ugly and organized. And mm-hmm. Donna, you got to understand, she was the poster girl, quite literally yes. the poster girl. And so mm-hmm. she took the brunt. She was walking at the front of the line while the tomatoes and the rotten eggs were being thrown. Mm-hmm. All the while, everywhere you went, you know, whether it was a television special, whether it was a worldwide concert tour, whether it was the charts, whether it was radio play, there was nothing but Donna. Donna, Donna, Donna. So there was just this awful dissonance. Now, she wasn't the only one that suffered from dealing with this violent response to quote unquote disco, but she was at the front.
0: Mm -hmm. If you did have to define what, the disco movement, let's say it's not a genre but whatever the movement was, because it was bigger than just music, it was about the club culture, it was about the partying it was was about the dance nature of, yeah, the shimmy shake exactly. How would you define the disco movement? Like, what exactly was that? If you were explaining it to a lay person who didn't know anything about it, what would you describe the movement as, essentially?
1: To me, disco was just very about freedom of expression for black artists. I do believe Mm -hmm. that. I do Mm -hmm. believe that when you're a part of the most era, which is like the blueprint really for all eras afterwards. There were a lot of rules and regulations and terms and conditions to being a Motown artist. <laughs> you know what I mean? You had to act yes. this way. You had to dress yes. this way. You know yes. what I mean? Very buttoned up. Very Zipped buttoned up. Perfect. up. Perfect. Yes. You were going to be fined if you did this. Like, fined. You were literally mm-hmm. going to be fined if you did this. <laughs> Couldn't
0: curse, you know, and all yeah. this kind gonna of to be stuff, a vision right? of perfection yes. because black artists, as you were talking about, had to show no seams, no splits in the cracks because Couldn't. they were so worried about being rejected by mainstream white culture Absolutely. with legitimate reason so an artist like diana ross had to present literally the vision of glamour the vision of perfection yes. in order to be successful yes
1: every eyelash every sequin in place Baby. But then you get mm-hmm. into a little bit of Philly soul, right? And you start to feel a little bit more freedom. You get into Stevie Wonder's late Motown era, you start mm-hmm. to feel a little bit more freedom. Storm, sky, mile, you get into Norman Whitfield era, you start to feel a little <laughs> more loosey goosey. <laughs> so then what happens is people start to say oh this is how free we can sound Mm. every little moment doesn't have to be rehearsed and we can still be pop stars Mm. we don't have to be perfect in every moment it must have been a glorious feeling actually even to be like Tavares or somebody right totally you know what I mean and to be like we're gonna wear bell bottoms and we're not gonna completely trim our afros and we're gonna rock the world And also, all these disco spaces, not all of them, but so many of them, the ones that mattered, were very multicultural. Yes. And there were right. super lovely queer spaces. Mm-hmm. Even with the velvet rope attitude of like, you're not cute enough to get in, or, <laughs> <laughs> or back of the line for you, boo, your outfit is not dope enough to get in the club, it still yeah. was democratic. Right. And I remember the specials and stuff of the day that would come on, or the People magazine photo essays, where it's like... Oh my god, Studio 54, Cary Grant is standing next to Grace Jones. Right. Oh my god, the world is changing. But the thing was, yeah. it was though.
3: Like Billingsley, Rubel spends most of his waking hours at his disco. Much of the time scanning the sea of faces on the sidewalk, handpicking the people who will make the party inside, in Rubel's words, a special mix that will allow fun for all
1: and boredom for none. And it's that very- was a part of the mainstream's response. The white mainstream has always been afraid of music because it literally does the work of bringing all types of people together. Mm. And so to me, disco just scared the S-H-I-T out of the powers that be.
0: You know what you're making me think of is the power, particularly of pop, of course, to bring people together, but of dance music and of dance spaces, because there is a very special form of unification that happens when you're in a room with people and a beat is playing and the whole thing is centered around freedom and dancing and experiencing that sort of loss of control together. Yes, that movement, that sweating. Yes, exactly. So disco in some ways is the apex of that concept within a pop context, because really boundaries do get broken down by that particular environment. They
1: do. Like, the base yeah. is the place. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. like, what are we doing? Like, th- these spaces were literally, legally and customarily segregated yes, from right. Motown's time. But right. always, you look back at the films of these things where it's like the white kids are sitting on one side and the black kids are sitting on the other or the white kids are down front on the bottom and the black kids are on the balcony. But there's always this actual or this urge to merge. Mm. Mm -hmm. You see it, you see it, you see it, you used to see it at the beginning of hip-hop, at hip-hop shows, you saw it at the discotheques, and it's very scary if that's not what the powers that be want.
0: Right, and as with every forward motion in American society, there's always a conservative backlash, as we well know. So, let's move on to Donna. Can you just give us a little bit of light backstory on who Donna Summer was, how she grew up, and then sort of how she ends up in Europe and meets Giorgio Moroder and Pete Bolette. Ballette? Ballette? Oh, you, you're we're the same on that. So you say you're the, <laughs> you're the only person that gets to say that name. And I
1: and me with Marauder, me too. I'm always a mess with that. You know, Donna was a black girl in Boston in segregated Boston. She's walking around in the late sixties and the early seventies. She's the tallest girl in the neighborhood, the most beautiful girl mm-hmm. in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. She's singing in her own church. She comes from a strict family but loving family. She talks about how much she loved her mom and dad, a big family too, a whole bunch of siblings. Mm-hmm. And she goes to a high school where she's known for being one of the best singers in school. And she's a little eccentric though. Mm -hmm. You know, the world is changing. Mm. As we were just saying, Donna Summer liked to dress the way she wanted to dress. She began singing in a local club and fronting a band called The Crow, which was basically like a white rock band. And she was the lead singer. And as she has mm. said herself, the band was called The Crow because I was The Crow, which is, <laughs> which is wild and crazy. But working at that particular club in Boston, she saw all types of groups come through. And she noticed though, that when she would try to get booked on her own, people just wanted her to sing R&B all the time. They wanted her to right. sing soul all the time. Mm-hmm. They wanted her to sing gospel all the time she's like i love all that all that is in my soul it's my foundation but i'm trying to do different things she even went to new york She was running around the west village trying to get booked trying to audition for broadway shows and off-broadway shows things were not going the way she wanted them to go and so she just decided you know what i gotta get out of here and i think so many black performers over the years male and female have said not that it's perfect in europe right But at least segregation isn't legal. (laughs) You know what I mean? Totally.
2: (laughs) Yes. At least they're not lynching
1: people. So actually, or metaphorically. So she just got out of Dodge pretty much with Mm. her very strict family's blessing. I sometimes think, though I don't have proof, that she chose Germany because her father had been based there when her father was a soldier during Uh. World War II. I always thought he might have brought some German words home Uh. and that made it just seem like a possibility you know what I mean?
0: Absolutely, oh, absolutely. All right, so Donna is in her early 20s. She gets the role of Sheila in the Munich production of the hit Broadway musical, Hair. <laughs> And that also leads to a series of roles in other productions in Germany and around Europe, including Godspell and Showboat, et cetera. But she's also simultaneously there pursuing a pop singing career. You know, it's really interesting. A couple of things are coming to mind. One was this quote that you have from her later in her career where she says, they categorize me as a black act, which is not the truth. I'm not even a soul singer. I'm more of a pop singer, which I think uh. is a really interesting uh. kind of radical thing for a black female artist to say, as you were talking about in this time, there's this expectation that all black female vocalists have to operate in this one specific Mm -hmm. mode. But then the other thing that's so fascinating about the like draw to Germany or whatever brought her there, whatever we're theorizing is so much of Donna's music, I feel like is defined by this fascinating clash between black American musical traditions and then like European Mm -hmm. dance music and dance traditions. That scene
1: was so vibrant at that time when Mm -hmm. she went over
0: there. And it's wild
1: that she just like slipped right in and was like, yes, I'm trying to do this. Do you want me to sing background? Do you want me to jump in the front? Like, do you want me to be in a play? Do you guys just want to have drinks? Like, do you know what I mean? As a matter of fact, do you want to date me? Do you want to get married? Do you want to have a kid with me? Like... That you talk again to go back to your original premise of just bravery, like it's just yeah. bravery. I think mm-hmm. it's wild to me the way she just went over there. Yes, it's and when, crazy. And you talk about that quote. I hear it, and it is very radical. But I hear the same thing. I, there's a great quote I think also in Shine Bright from Nancy Wilson, the great jazz singer Nancy Wilson, essentially saying the exact same thing. And I think mm-hmm. when they say I'm not a black artist, what they're meaning is not that they're not racially black. Right. What is meant is that why do you only put me on the R and B or what was then called the race charts? Mm and was often called the N word charts. Why must I play only the venues on the quote unquote Chitlin circuit? Why can't I play Carnegie Hall? Right. And so I think that's what they mean. It's like, yes, they're black. They're well aware that they're black But Mm -hmm. it's like, why do you keep me in this narrow hallway of blackness? Why? When I'm clearly pop. And by pop, I do believe they mean when I am clearly just popular. Mm -hmm. Everybody loves me. Why can I only play the nightclub with no good lighting, no good sound, and only charge $4 a ticket? Why oh can't God. I play the mat and charge $150 a ticket?
0: You're reminding me of something, although he is obviously a very controversial figure at this point, that's like been kind of Kanye West's calling card for so long is this same sort of bracing against categorization and bracing against being put in a specific box and kind of making it his almost like his life's mission at a certain point to be like, I'm not what you want me to be. I want to be all of these other things. So this Feels like it's ongoing with a lot of black artists and pop. I agree. So, Donna's in Europe working on this musical and on her series of musicals she appears in there. She also has a series of one off singles that get released, including obviously Aquarius from the musical Hair, but she also has a cover of the J Nets hit Sally Go Round the Roses that's part of like a one off deal with Decca Records. Sally go She has a single called If You're Walking Alone on Phillips Records. If
2: you're walking alone.
0: neither of which make her a particularly big star. She marries this guy, this Austrian guy, Helmuth Sommer in 1973 and gives birth to a daughter that same year. She's doing background vocals for artists like this keyboardist, Velt Marvos, And while she's also doing some part-time sort of modeling work, as far as I understand it, in... Munich, along with her background singing, she meets the producers Giorgio Moroder and Pete Latte at their Musicland studios in Munich in 1974. And they immediately forge this incredible, legendary pop music partnership that will forever change the course of both of their careers and, of course, of pop music history, generally speaking. Now... Giorgio is born actually in Italy, but he moves to Berlin at age 25 to work as like a sound engineer. And he's kind of known prior to meeting Donna for this Beach Boys-esque single he releases called Looky Looky in 1968. Lookie, lookie. And he founds what becomes this legendary recording studio in Munich called Musicland Studios, which will go on in the 70s and 80s to play home to recording sessions by Led Zeppelin, Queen, Rolling Stones, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, to him, Peter and Donna's music together. So in 1972, Giorgio meets the lyricist Peter Bellate, who... Immediately, kind of becomes his primary collaborator, notably on songs like Son of My Father, which they write and produce for the group, the British group Chicory Tip in 1972, which becomes a number one hit in the UK. Was, street, run, and these are like very European takes on popular American rock styles of the era, is what they kind of register as for me. And essentially, when Donna, Pete, and Giorgio meet, it seems to me almost like there's this instant synergy, this instant recognition of what might be coming out of the three of them, these two European men and this black woman from Boston coming together. So what's your understanding of, like, why that synergy was so evident from the jump. Why this particular collaboration would go on to be so powerful and to change music history forever before any of them were really like the superstars that we think of them as now. They were all just kind of trying to figure out what the fuck they were doing, you know?
1: It's historic and it's revolutionary.
0: Mm -hmm. I think
1: there's power in scene, S-C-E-N-E. And I think that Donna was a huge part of it. I think they were a huge part of it. And I just think that they really did spark each other creatively. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think- if I'm also being a little bit cynical, each side knew what the other side could do mm. for the other. There's a long history of that in pop. Right. You know what I mean? You can go to you know Warwick and Backrack and David. Ah. You could go to Madonna and her early producers. You could go to Britney and the guys from Full Force early in her career as well, where people know that this merge of whatever is whiteness in music mm-hmm. and whatever is blackness in music somehow even becomes more powerful when those two
0: meet up. So the first thing that happens when Donna and Giorgio and Pete collaborate is they record her first record, which is called "Lady of the Night," mm. which sounds very not like what Donna's sort of most famous music sounds like. I was getting kind of almost like it's a little folky yeah, or something. F- folky, it's exactly. Folky. I wrote hippy dippy <laughs> shit. Yeah, exactly.
1: No, same thing. <laughs> same opinion. Same opinion. Same opinion.
0: And like a little bit Leslie Gore girl groups on some of the songs as well.
1: The energy is very tentative. to me. Yes. It's very tentative.
0: Tentative is a great word for what this is. It feels like they're still trying to figure out what exactly their thing is together and they do have one hit off this album in Europe called The Hostage which makes sense I guess because it's almost like this campy musical theater-esque sort of song like big camp values, big theater vibes. Obviously Donna's been doing a lot of theater as she's been in Europe and which is something Donna returns to a lot in her music actually. There's a lot of musical theater elements to what she does but they do have this kind of like novelty hit the hostage off this record lady of the night in
3: 1974 he was a hostage.
0: interestingly the song is somewhat controversial because it's like about a politician being kidnapped for ransom or something so for an its career is going to be defined by some controversy it does have that element going on so the song is a hit like in the netherlands and sweden and france and germany but it doesn't turn donna into like a massive massive superstar the album itself doesn't chart particularly high i believe it actually misses the chart in most countries so it's kind of like this novelty thing but everything really turns around for them and the establishing for Donna, Giorgio, and Pete really doesn't come until the next year, 1975. So in 1975, they get back into the studio and they record a little ditty that you might have heard called... Love to Love You, Baby. Oh! (laughs) You might have heard of it. Can you talk a little bit about Love to Love You, Baby? What's happening on that song and why it's such a revelation, both for this collaboration and for disco as a genre?
1: I mean, that's a big old question, but I will say this. (laughs) Donna has said that she made up a persona to sing that song. Who knows if that's true? I don't know if she said that because everybody came back and said just, you know, how, quote unquote, nasty it was. Yeah how erotic it was some said how pornographic it was but to me as I just said the other music was sounding very kind of tentative you Mm -hmm. said hippy dippy I said folky this was not that no This was an announcement of self. This was an announcement also that black women's sexuality is about to be put right at your front door, right on your radio station, right on the cover of whatever magazine would have her. I think the best way to describe it is erotic and hypnotizing. You can listen to it and have a really good time with yourself. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> be, be that dancing or something else, there was nothing like it. It's very rare that you can say this. There was nothing like it that came before
0: it. Right. So, from my understanding, the way it came together was that Giorgio and Pete were very interested in making a disco record, which had sort of become popular like in the United States by 1974, 75, but still really hadn't reached like the peak saturation and peaks we think of now as the definitive disco moments. So, they were interested in exploring this new genre with Donna for this second album that they were making after Lady of the Night. And it was Donna's idea to make the song incredibly sexual. She wanted it to be what she called a sexual disco track. But it was Pete and Giorgio who had the idea of her kind of moaning orgasmically on the song. And she was reticent about that at first. But then was able to get it off essentially by imagining herself as Marilyn Monroe and channeling Marilyn Monroe. And you can really hear that in the vocals because Donna is a very strong and powerful singer, as we've seen in some of her early stage work and in some of her early material that we've talked about already. This is a very different presentation of her vocals, it's a real Marilyn esque coup. It kind of speaks to what we were talking about earlier, which is that this tradition of Black women in pop having to present this very buttoned up image and also having to perhaps obscure carnality or sexuality Mm. in their work in order to seem non-threatening. So this was truly a radical moment where a Black woman was like, actually, no, I'm going to be my fully embodied sexual self on record.
1: And also just this voluptuous, chocolate-skinned Black women with all this like, big jet ebony colored hair and yeah. all these big glorious waves and these full lips and this seductive and beautiful smile, mm-hmm. all these eyelashes and just announcing I'm sexy and I'm also sexual. Mm. And man, it knocked everybody's socks off. And then when we <laughs> get to the disco
0: version, yeah, the long version, Yes, 16 minutes and change.
1: Of bliss, of bliss. (laughs) Of
0: bliss, yeah. (laughs) And of a lot of moaning. I mean, she really was giving you like a full orgasmic vibe on this song.
1: Oh, completely.
0: It's very striking even to this day. Mm -hmm. And I kept thinking about like the template that this song has set. I mean, we take it for granted, but you think about Throb by (gasps) Janet. think about erotica by madonna you think about touching my hand by britney of course you think about naughty girl as you mentioned on the podcast mm-hmm. by beyonce
1: love hangover from diana ross which was very nearby
0: The long tail of this song, it has to be one of the most influential performances, mm-hmm. vocal performances in pop history. I agree with you. And what's fascinating also to me about this song is Donna's actually an incredible wide ranging singer. Mm-hmm. I think she often gets remembered for this coup that she invents because it is so influential the way that she sings on this song and has mm-hmm. been copied over and over again. But so funny to think about when you listen to a lot of her other records, she can really belt. She can. She's got a pretty wide ranging and like virtuosic singing voice. But it's funny because the thing that really breaks her through is this whole entire other thing. This sort of light coup that kind of comes to define some of her most memorable hits from this period. I just thought that that was really interesting looking back at her music.
1: When you really listen to that record too, it echoes on throughout history. Like you say, Mm -hmm. it's just like you hear it in really literally everything. And I also see some of her style moments. I was just looking at Beyonce's album cover for Dangerously in Love. Mm -hmm. And I thought from the moment I saw that cover, the one where she has kind of the glittery halter top on, And she has her hands above Mm -hmm. her head I was like it's giving Donna Summer Oh yeah Like it is completely
0: Disco queen
1: It is Mm -hmm. disco queened out It really is So you see her really really everywhere When you think about like you said Just the way her voice just has so much range And she has so much control And discipline I think Like you said from singing Not just singing But belting To be heard at the back of the church And to be heard at the back of the playhouse Mm. All of that is in there too
0: So, Love to Love You Baby is initially released in 1975 in Europe as a three-minute song that becomes a modest hit over there. Marauder takes the song to Neil Bogart, who is the head honcho of Casablanca Records at the time in the United States, plays it for him, and Bogart likes it and is the person that actually convinces them to record the now canonical 16-minute version, which is the version we all know and love today, and releases it in the United States. It coincides, obviously, in 76 with the utter saturation. Of disco, generally speaking, it becomes emblematic of that particular moment in disco's rise. And it peaks at number two on the Hot 100 and turns Donna Summer basically overnight into a complete and utter pop superstar. It was also incredibly controversial and had a ton of backlash. It got banned from many radio stations, Time Magazine and many others wrote about it negatively. You know, one thing that has defined pop stardom anti what we were talking about with the 60s girl groups and the Motown girl groups is utilizing controversy to your advantage. I wonder if there's, things that Donna did in terms of how she related to the sort of uproar that the song created that helped her pop career, because this is a moment of extreme controversy, but it Mm. seems to have only benefited her. That feels like a blueprint to me in some ways, because God knows many pop stars that have come after her have utilized and purposefully generated controversy of similar sorts, and it's really helped them. So this feels like a real moment where that was brought into form.
1: That's why You know, I will say that as much as I've thought about her, I haven't really thought about it in that way. And I can right. see that. I do say this, though. Mm. If she and her creative partners had an idea that there was going to be... As much backlash as there was culturally from like the big magazines and, you know, the cultural TV shows. If Mm -hmm. they knew that, my God, what a risk.
0: Right. But you said she was pretty bold. So it makes sense to me. Yes. This is a bold song. Do we hear on this song what makes? Giorgio and Pete, so special? Like, what is it about them as producers that causes them to stand out? Well,
1: one, I think part of it was geography. Aside from their own genius, I think it was geography. You know, we think of the early 70s and the 70s in general as being this sort of, oh my God, it's like a free spirited time in America mm-hmm. and all this. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's just not true, though. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? That's yeah. the mythology. The mythology. It's mm-hmm. like everything was not happening in San Francisco. There's like, A whole other country. Everything was not flower power and Mm. dropping out, and everything was not that. Most stuff was Mm. like I Dream of Jeannie and (laughs) Mayberry RFD, the Andy Griffith show. Like that was the 70s, and there were not black people on TV. There was nobody gay or queer on TV. Like none of this Mm -hmm. was happening. Or if they were, of course there were, they just weren't able to be out because of the violence that would be imposed upon them. So, I think that in Europe, again, not perfect in any way, but there weren't these long-standing rules and regulations based in slavery, reconstruction, Jim Crow, and civil rights movement, where mm-hmm. black people were supposed to act this way. White people were supposed to act this way. Black people's music was supposed to sound this way. White people's music was supposed to sound this way. Mm-hmm. That's what was going on in America. You had to basically be revolutionary for it to be different in America. Mm-hmm. I feel like in Europe, and based on the stories that I've been told and the research I've been done, things were just a little bit looser right, in Europe. Mm-hmm. And so that's where some of that love to love you, but I don't know that love to love you, baby, could have been made and released in the United States. Right. With the gatekeepers that were in place at the labels. Yeah. Place, no, yeah.
0: no. Well, I also think about Europe's longstanding elevation of camp and dance and pop music that America has often struggled with for homophobic and racist reasons over and over again. There has always been a more prevalent tradition of pure pop, of dance music, of innovations in those categories, whereas America has a very fraught relationship with all of that stuff. So I, I wonder if that kind of fed into no, the Giorgio I th- innovations of the I time. think you're
1: absolutely right. Especially back then, as compared to what was going on in the United States, there was this idea that perhaps I can just be me. This goes back to James Baldwin. And it's like, can I just sit in a cafe and
0: write poems? Right.
1: Can I just go to a studio and make music with whoever I want to make it with? Mm -hmm. Like these were luxuries back in those times.
0: So Donna has this establishing hit and... Then she releases this series of kind of, like, concept records with Giorgio and Pete that are pretty interesting. There's one called Four Seasons of Love that is essentially, like, long disco songs that are, like, meant to reflect the moods of, like, different seasons. Four Seasons of Love is super luscious disco with huge orchestrations and strings and beautiful arrangements. Definitely worth checking out. It doesn't actually have any definitive Donna hits, but it really was worth listening to as this like interesting concept album. And Donna positioning herself as an albums artist in this era, in this disco era, is something really fascinating, which I think we can pick up on a little bit later. Something that black women were often denied credibility in was the album format. And so I'm always intrigued by Donna's embrace of the album format in these records, in these concept albums during the mid to late 70s. So on the follow-up to Four Seasons of Love, she released this record, I Remember Yesterday in 1977, a concept record that explored pop through the decade. So like there are songs on here that not at the 40s. And then the girl group stylings of the 50s.
2: And
0: then the 60s and then the 70s. And pinned on to the end of this pretty wildly ambitious concept album is this song that was meant to connote the future after going through all of these decades called I Feel Love, which Um. is perhaps, I'd say arguably one of the top five most influential pop songs ever created because it's the first song to be made entirely with electronic and synthesized elements. It's an afterthought, as far as I understand it, for all three, Giorgio, Pete, and Donna, when they made it. This was not supposed to be the centerpiece of this record. It was not supposed to be the kind of hit that it was, but it ended up catching fire and turning into a smash hit, kind of her next real big hit. Because in these interim records, she had a series of like minor hits in Europe and in America, but she hadn't had a hit as big as Love to Love You Baby in the interim between these two songs. So can you talk to me a little bit about I Feel Love, love and why that was such a huge turning point in pop music generally speaking
1: you yep, have to understand. now we're getting to a point where like i'm starting to listen to music like it's my own music right i'm 11 12 13 14 whatever i was mm-hmm. and i just remember thinking that it was the most perfect record that i had heard the way it functioned for me is that i just did not want it to end
0: It has a real feeling of suspension. You know what I mean?
1: Yes. A lot of songs, at least for me, for pop, the thrill is, especially when I was a kid, was I want to hear it and then I want it to end <laughs> and then I want it to play yeah. it again. Though, right? I want to play it over and over again. To me, that's the definition of a lot of pop: is that kids want right. to hear it back to back to back. But this record, it seemed so sophisticated to me for that reason. As mm-hmm. a kid, I felt like I was listening to sophistication. I felt like I was listening to something that lifted me. Your word, suspension, is amazing. I remember feeling quite hypnotized and taken out of my own time and space. And that it also sounded very not American to me. It sounded not like stuff I knew to be American music.
0: Well, it's so interesting because disco is so defined by sort of lush, live instrumentation, strings and drum sections and huge Mm. orchestral arrangements. This song is very spare. What's fascinating to me about this is the contrast between the icy electronics of the production and the warmth and almost angelic, ethereal feel of Donna's vocal performance on it. That... Combination is something that has been copied over and over oh, yeah. and over and over again, but that contrast is incredibly powerful. The way that she like melts all over these sort of jagged edges Ooh, yeah. is such a powerful contrast that which is what makes the song so fascinating. The warmth of her humanity in the context of this like utterly synthetic landscape. That strobing effect that, oh, yes, yes. Very
1: craft work in, very craft work. Yes, exactly,
0: workin'. right. And we should talk about craft work because yes. craft work is the real precedent for this in terms mm-hmm. of creating electronic music but that's a delay effect. So it's basically one bass line that's just going dun, 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 dun. But they created a delay so it started to echo. So it went and that sound has come to define so many electronic music productions and creates this strobing effect. I feel like what this song does is create what the modern club space feels like in aural form. You know what I mean? The idea of a strobing light, the idea of this booming electronic music. This song really encapsulates And I'm so taken with the idea of what an afterthought the song was for all of them because it comes at the end of a very traditional pop album. And Donna recorded her vocals in one take for the song. And the influence of this song just cannot be understated. Like Madonna doesn't happen without this song. New Wave, Trance, House, EDM, Human League. You spin me right round, baby, like right, right round like a record. Like these are all songs that basically were born out of this like crazy experiment they did of like, what can we do if we create a song that has no live instrumentation in it? Now- The T is that there actually is live instrumentation in the song, which is that they couldn't get the drums to sound right. So the drums are actually played by a live drummer. Mm -hmm. But it was the first time that an entire pop song was made to a click track, which is now how all pop songs are made. So because all of the instrumentation was electronic, it was perfectly sequenced out in a way that like live instrumentation never can be. So the drummer listened to a click track, recorded his drum part. And also it was the first time in Giorgio, Pete and Donna's making of music together that they created the track baseline and all of it before they made the melody, which I also think is a really interesting innovation point because so much pop music is made this way now where there's like producers will come up with a track and then a top line writer will come in and write a melody over this that beat. That is how so it's done now. Yes, absolutely. So this was also the first time that that really happened. So this song, I don't think it would be possible to overstate the sort of influence that this song had. And I also feel like it's a pretty interesting refinement of the vocal performance she gives on Love to Love You Baby. Mm -hmm. It's another ethereal coup that kind of became her calling card in this period. So that's another huge hit for Donna. At this point, like in 1977, is she the queen of disco already? Has she ascended to that title in public imagination?
1: Yes, she is. She is, but it's a combination of... me, her appearance in the movie Thank God It's Friday and mm. Last Dance being on that soundtrack. And then all of the appearances that came in the wake of Last Dance on late night television. These mm. were moments to me that really lifted her up right. to just being like a pop star, being the most popular star mm. in the country.
3: Donna Summer is currently one of the uh, hottest performers right now in the entertainment business. And uh, although this is her first appearance on The Tonight Show, but uh, she's known practically already almost throughout the world for her recordings and she is in a new movie called Thank God It's Friday. And also, of course, she's on the soundtrack album. Would you welcome, please, Miss Donna Summer. <laughs> I was watching the audience while you were singing. I think half of them want to get up and, and to start moving. It's tough to, it's tough to sit there. <laughs> Can I just say that? I always wanted to be on your show, so much. Really, you know, wanted to have you here too. Well, you know something, as a child, <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I shouldn't no, say this. No, that's all right. Go ahead. We've been here. So we've been long here. waited so long to do the show. You know, it might be the last time. No, we've been here um, a couple of years. Yes, you know, about two or three years ago when I first saw your show. Um, <laughs> much better. Much better. I, uh, I thought that you know, if you really were a star, you had to be on the Johnny Carson yeah. show. So that was, it was always my biggest dream. I said, I know I'm a star when I've done the Johnny Carson show. So today, when I go home, mm-hmm. I'll look at myself and say,
2: you
1: know something? How, you made it. You <laughs> Those tonight? moments and the outfits that she wore on Johnny Carson and all this, like, this is what a disco queen looks like, baby. Like, this is what I'm yeah. doing. Like, I'm giving you wrap around rayon skirt right now. Like, this is what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm giving you a good strappy heel. I'm giving you the biggest hair that I'm able to give you. Yes. And she really just romanced Carson on his own show. And I just feel like Last Dance was the moment. It was the moment. And I also think that her performance in Thank God It's Friday, which is right now thought of as like kind of maybe a cult favorite, even if that. But right. in the moment when it was out, if you were a young kid of color, that was like your matinee, man. I think I saw it like 8, 12 times. It came out in, I guess, late 77 mm-hmm. and it was kind of the answer to Saturday Night Fever, which was basically mm-hmm. about white folks in New York going out dancing. Obviously, John Travolta starring, mm-hmm. giving the best hair and dance he has ever given. And sure. the VG's <laughs> (laughs) on the record-breaking and revolutionary soundtrack. But there were really no Black people in the movie.
0: And there were no Which is uh, insane to make a movie about disco and have no Black people.
1: In New York. In New York. In the Northeast. In the Northeast. (laughs) Bananas at that time. That's Hollywood. That's Hollywood. There was an answer to it, though. And thank God it's Friday and it took place in a discotheque in -hmm. Los Angeles. Actually, the discotheque was not too far from my home in Los Angeles. I was too young to go, but they did have Saturday dances there that I used to go to for kids. And it was Mm -hmm. an amazing place called Oscos in what is now on the border of West Hollywood and Beverly Hills. But in this movie, she played a girl who wanted to be a star. That's the other thing that contributed um, to her myth. All of a sudden, she wasn't like the black girl who left Boston because it was too segregated and they didn't right. like her music. And she had to go to Germany and make these sexy records. Now, all of a sudden, the way America could see her was as her character. And mm. thank God it's Friday, which is like a girl who wants to get her demo played by the DJ at the hot Wait disco. This is going to-
0: there are millions of people listening to my golden tones. I ain't going to blow it. This ain't amateur
3: night. Listen, Mr. Big Shot DJ. I ain't no amateur. I paid my dues. All I'm asking for
1: is a chance. Lady, please. Hey, this baby. is what most of America began to believe was really right. Donna's story. In right. that way that we all believe that Janet Jackson was rushed off to Minneapolis to Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis's magical castle in the sky. Right. <laughs> <laughs> to make her third and culture altering album when yes. it was not quite that romantic. So right. thank God it's Friday. And then the song that she wanted the DJ, the great guy, the late Ray Vite mm-hmm. portrayed the DJ. He plays it and she sings it. And it's just one of those moments in film where you conflate the character with the mm-hmm. person.
2: Mm-hmm. Hey, look, sweetheart, I'm get on stage. On the Who
1: are
3: you calling sweetheart? Perky? We're going live now. You understand? Live. I what
0: told are you, you doing? I live, show, man. You got to get it the Hey, will you please get off the stage? Yes, Listen, stage. man. You're killing me. You you can't, me. Can't put, can't, put the microphone go. down, all right? Just you put it down and get off the stage. Talking about you could deliver a comedy. Hey,
3: sweetheart, get I'm off the stage. Cause you ain't gave me nothing. But Sam, Listen, Sam, Sam, I can't do everything myself. I I just give me a few minutes, huh? Otherwise, I'm gonna break every bone in your goddamn hand. Microphone, get off the stage give me the commodore sam that right. to go you want me to go live? Live. live right now and right? okay you got them like
0: you have Come on man time is up you, you better get man. we got to go live right, sam, here comes. live oh, let's dance the last dance let's dance the last dance let's dance let's dance the
3: last dance, let's dance. Let's dance.
1: And then she was wearing the dresses that she was wearing in Thank God It's Friday for all her appearances. So you really conflated the two, and it worked like a charm. And then the mm. song won the Oscar for Best mm.
0: Original Song. You described this as her most perfect song in your book.
1: It is to me, though. It is because I think she knows I'm making a statement. I'm putting my flag in the sand back yes. home. That is the energy. And I fear for all you who come after me, because you shall never reach the heights <laughs> of my glory. Like, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that is the energy of Last Dance. And also yeah. because that's when she first first gave us her trademark, slow run up. This is
0: her favorite thing.
1: (laughs) To to a popping ass disco beat. She loves that. For the last four fifths. But that first one fifth, you're going to get this ballot.
0: almost has a show tune vibe at the beginning, a little, and I'm telling you, I'm not going a little bit, ain't no mountain high enough, and then all of a sudden it kicks in. Also, first real hit of hers, I feel like that gives you the full voice, like she's really singing in her full voice in this, and it's just the most luscious production, just the best representation of what disco was, which was just like total maximalism, total lusciousness, and proud, proud drama. And yes. the other thing that I personally love about Last Dance, I have two things I want to say. One thing is that, again, the sort of proud cardinality, which I think is such an important part of Donna's thing. Can you fill my appetite? Like this unabashed, unashamed presentation of her sexuality yes. is something that was radical, as we've talked about, for a black woman and for maybe most women at this point to be portraying in this way. And how much of female pop stardom Has been this journey towards standing proudly in your sexuality. I mean, that is the whole journey. Let's just say, let's just say the whole journey. Every single female pop star goes on this same exact journey. And she was really out here. And it doesn't come across as salacious ever. It feels embodied and powerful. And I think that this song really is a amazing display of that. The other thing that you were making me think of earlier when you were speaking about her persona and the way she presented herself physically and the dresses and the charm is... The thing about the late 70s into the early 80s is pop stardom goes through this radical reinvention because of mtv where it becomes this 360 degree endeavor like Always. and a lot of stars don't survive that transition and i think that What's really interesting about what you're laying out is I think Donna somehow instinctually had a vibe, as I think Diana Ross did in her way as well, of like, pop stardom is not just me making these great records that get played Mm-mm. on the radio. It's about the persona. It's about how I look. It's
1: the lifestyle. It's the right.
0: lifestyle. And I feel like she was kind of innovative in that way. Is that an accurate I read? think
1: that's absolutely accurate and totally beyond fair to say that. I think she knew about that conflation. I don't know how much planning was going on in Germany. I don't know. Right. Because I still feel like, oh, we're just happy and excited. We're making amazing things, oh my god yeah. but I feel like when we get back to America we have to get really strategic right now, don't we yeah because now we're back over here and things work a certain way over here. They've worked a certain way historically and now they're working a new way because mm-hmm. everything is on TV all the time now you can see people all the time there's more black people in magazines there's more black people getting booked on late night television. Right. We've got to bring it really strategically and she rose to the occasion I mean I think it wore her out as it does so many.
0: I mean, the pace at which she's releasing music in this period, it cannot be understated. I mean, she was releasing a record like every single year. She Insanity. Exhausted. And I also was reading that, you know, it did create a lot of issues for her at home. Like her daughters really struggled with like the level of work that she put in. I, mm-hmm. I, she talks about it. Around this period, she released a live album, which everyone should go listen to. It's a really fantastic live album that really mm-hmm. showcases her vocals and her charm. I mean, mm-hmm. just absolutely effervescent, charming personality. But she very often honestly talks about how her kids struggle with her workload and how hard she's working and that she's not there for them when they need her or there to tuck them in every night and she talks about that very candidly on stage in a way that really touched me when i was listening to that
3: my little girl is here tonight and i don't think you understand what it's like being the daughter of someone who is always gone it's kind of scary and it's kind of lonely and I guess you think to yourself sometimes, is mommy ever gonna, ever gonna come home? And so my daughter looked up at me one day last week and she said, mommy, when are you just gonna stay home one day and be with me? And so it kind of struck me funny and I didn't realize that I hadn't spent any time with her for a long time. So I sat down and wrote the song after she went to bed. And I told her tonight when it was bedtime, I would sing her song.
1: She does talk about it a lot, too, in general. She talks about it in interviews. She talks about it all the time. She talked about even the relationship. You know, she's like, yeah, everyone's saying I'm a pop star. I'm the queen of disco or whatever. All I know is that since you all have started calling me a queen, I haven't had five minutes alone with my boyfriend. Mm. These are the kinds of things she talks about pop stardom being so suffocating. She described it as being in Times Square on New Year's Eve 24 hours a day. Right. It's very hard, I think, for people, for fans even, to feel empathy sympathy for pop stars because there's the money there's the fame right there's all these things but there is also a thing called a person's actual life i think donna part of the reason she was putting out so much music in this era that you're talking about because there's this fear i think especially Mm -hmm. among women Right, and especially among black women, that if Mm -hmm. I don't keep going, it's going to stop. It's going to be taken away from me. It's
0: a legitimate fear, particularly for women of color, but I think for all people in the pop space, I mean, pop is the ficklest, most youth oriented, most on to the next thing that could possibly exist in the world. Absolutely. It makes sense. And I also pulled out a quote that you quoted her as saying, you know, this all comes from my sense of desperately needing to be understood, my desire to affect change through something I have to say. I question myself all the time, why am I doing this? It's not even the money. At some point, it's just madness. I don't know why I have such a drastic need to be understood, but I do. Mm. The only specific thing people need to understand is that I need to be free. I thought that was such a powerful quote. Is that not the most powerful quote? Yes, because this is the thing that I have realized in making my show, is you have to have some sort of sick level of ambition to make it to this place. Like There is not one pop star that makes it into this place Mm -mm. that doesn't make massive personal sacrifice massive to be here
1: massive and it used to be sexy to talk about yeah i, I think i <laughs> yeah i, I think there, right. there was a whole era where everyone wanted to know every single sacrifice that you made and mm-hmm. and what you had to give up to get to where you are i think now it's looked upon like well too bad, so sad. You have what yes. you have, so you should just be happy with that. And of course, you had to give up things to have the things that you have, but look at the things that you have. Mm-hmm. And I think that takes away, honestly, from the humanity of the people who are making the thing. People right. are still actually and truly making the things right, and doing the work. And mm-hmm. I think you lose a real authentic connection to your fave or to your superstar, (laughs) when you don't acknowledge. And I think the Donna Summers of the world, the Janet Jacksons, they went through all of this kind of thing to give us this thing that we sort of
0: live and breathe by. You know what I mean? Absolutely. No question about it. So Donna, as I mentioned, releases this very successful live album that i was referencing in relation to her daughter that features one of her signature hits her cover of macarthur park which hits number one in 1978. And Donna's career kind of apexes here at the end of the 70s in tandem kind of with the beginning of the fall of disco with this record, Bad Girls, which Woo-hoo. comes out in 1979, which is widely considered to be her greatest full-length record and contains a series of quintessential Donna and disco hits, including the song Bad Girls, Hot Stuff, Dim All the Lights. Can you talk to me a little bit about what's going on on Bad Girls that's maybe slightly altering the formula of these previous hits? You mentioned briefly in your book that it's bringing bringing heavy metal into the picture. What's happening on this record that makes it so special in the quintessential Donna Summer album?
1: She just put a huge exclamation point on everything that had happened thus far. And I also think she was like, again, first you tried to put me into a narrow hallway of gospel and R&B. And then you tried to put me in the narrow hallway of she's the nasty girl from Europe. And then you tried to put me in the narrow hallway of she's the disco queen. Well, let me tell you something. I'm a pop girl. Mm -hmm. I'm a pop girl. (laughs) I am basically, I am your everything. Get right with that fact. Because Mm -hmm. again, I wasn't quite old enough to be totally outside when these songs were hitting. But let me tell you something just on the radio alone, just that school dances alone Mm -hmm. just based on the way that girls, white, black, and otherwise were trying to dress exactly like Donna Summer dressed in every single solitary way her impact on culture was massive it was massive and she took into consideration and it's the same thing Mariah talks about it, Janet talks about it, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis talk about it, producers Mm -hmm. like Sean Puffycombs talk about it we're Mm -hmm. going to give people a magical merge so that people of all different walks of life and ages can find a way into this album or even into this particular song. Mm,
0: right and that is what pop becomes in this moment. Yes it yeah. is. Mm-hmm. Come
1: on Bad Girls, bad girls, talking about the sad
2: girls.
1: Sad bad girls
0: was insane. Baby she snapped on Bad Girls. I, first of all I love that it's about an interaction between a police officer and a sex mm. worker right? <laughs> which is like Kind of seems like a pretty cutting-edge thing to make a pop song about in that Yes, it
1: really was.
0: The infamous toot-toot, beep-beep could be interpreted as the sound of a cop car. I love what you say about this record sort of setting the template for the modern pop record, including Thriller, is what you bring up. Because yes. if, as you were sort of insinuating earlier, which I think is totally true, what pop becomes in kind of the post-Michael era is post-genre. It's not operating in a specific mode. It's like, how do I pull this from this and this from this and to create the most widely appealing, maximally enjoyable product. Mm -hmm. And people often credit Thriller as kind of the record that proves that point because you think about a song like Beat It, right? Which is like, it's disco, it's rock, it's pop, it's Mm R&B. It's like, it's so many things in one. To me, Hot Stuff is kind of the predecessor to that because Hot Stuff, it's disco. It's got this big rock guitar on it. It could mm-hmm. be the Rolling Stones. It's dirty It's and sleazy in this glorious way. You can feel the sweat dripping off of it. That's the Donna Summer thing on Bad Girls that I love. One thing that I was curious about before we even talk about the other music on this is what does it mean to Donna Summer to be a bad girl? I mean, she talks a lot about how, you know, when I'm bad, I'm oh so bad. You know, Mm -hmm. she celebrates this concept of being a bad girl quite often in her music. What do you think that that means to her?
1: I need you by me, beside me, to guide me, to hold Uh me and to scold me. (laughs) She gets right down into it. Man, some of that I think... Man, people say church girls are the wildest. I I mean I don't know I don't I don't know if that's true. You know what I mean? I don't know if that's true, but I went to Catholic school and I could say we had some good times up at St. Mary's. So I mean, some of it is that I think, honestly. Mm -hmm. And some of it is a rebelliousness against that. Also, she talks often about being from a very strict. Households. She mm-hmm. loved her family. They were all good to each other. But it was still very strict and Christian and as she says, I, I you know, I want to be free. And mm-hmm. and in those times being free meant that you were kind of being I a see. bad girl.
0: Right. Yes. I think that's exactly right.
1: You know, you're mm-hmm. being a bad girl even by wearing your skirt. Man, the nuns used to measure literally with a tape measure or a ruler how high mm-hmm. your skirt was hemmed off from the front of your knee up your thigh. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's like what are you talking about (laughs) like what are you talking about and so you know donna summer just i think she just was tired like so many women of her era of this rigidity of how black women are supposed to present Right. You know, and she's like, I'm not presenting like any of that, even in my Boston neighborhood. You know, I'm the the eccentric girl. So that's where I think a lot of it comes from. I do. I think she just wanted to be herself and to be free.
0: I think badass freedom is a great way to describe it. I also think it's a powerful reclamation of her image and the way that she was maligned during the love to love you baby era for being overtly sexual, etc.
1: Yeah. Yes, for sure, man, for mm-hmm. sure. And I would even put like this whole thing we're talking about, like this merge of music. I think a lot of credit is given to Walk This Way
0: and yes. Run DMC I and I thought about Walk This Way when I was listening to Hot Stuff. And
1: I'm like, yeah, but Donna already did that, boo. She did yeah. that.
0: She and her crew did that. Absolutely. I completely agree. That's such a... I literally wrote in my notes this precursor to Walk This Way. Yes. So Bad Girls is like a humongous record. And I also think... Another thing that's fascinating about it is it really works as a body of work in a way that like these big concept albums like Thriller, Rhythm Nation, Like a Prayer, you know, these pop event concept albums, it feels like kind of like the bridge point between pops past and future in that way. Every song actually is like mixed together in like a DJ mix, which is Mm -hmm. incredibly fascinating Mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. So... Hot stuff and bad girls both hit number one. Dim all the lights hits number two. You were saying Mm. that that's your favorite song on the record. Mm. Another classic fake out, begins Mm -hmm. slow and turns into a disco anthem (laughs) halfway through. Yes,
1: so country too. Dim all the lights, sweet darling. She just sounds uh, like oh, she sounds so good. It's like a lot of country elements that walk up to the disco. That, that's like coded, man. That's coded. <laughs> that's like, hey, Memphis. You know what I'm saying? That's very, hey, West Virginia. Uh, no, it is, though. She's shouting yeah, to everybody.
0: This is the peak of her real hit making. She has two other hits that come out of kind of like a Greatest Hits album, and on Barbara Streisand's album, she has these two songs on the radio. And enough is enough. You describe on the radio as a funeral dirge for disco. What did you mean by that?
1: It was time. Mmm. Something in my little soul, mm-hmm. my little teenage soul, knew that we had come to a point. I even felt it too, I think, in the Barbra Streisand, who I, I love
0: Barbra Streisand and that record. And Donna grew up looking up to Barbra Streisand, you noted as well.
1: Yes, man, yes. What a dream come true. And the way they were essentially battling each other vocally on that record mm-hmm. and took them to such heights and the arrangement, everything, they could have gone on. I feel mm-hmm. like somebody had to call right. time. Just look at me. <laughs> What was I watching the other night? And the line was, you know, every god has her day. Every goddess has her day. You know, everyone has their heyday. And I think I could just sort of feel it, even as a very young person, that we were coming to a place where there were people under her that were going to be more relevant to American culture. It was just a time, even though I love that record, I love on the radio and that that Barbara Streisand song is for all time.
0: A true pop epic (laughs) to Vag the Ball.
1: And they both coming out of that singing to the back of the, yes, Yes. like we belt out over here is the energy, like we belt songs, we're not coming in tentative, we're singing without a mic, damn you, to the back of the house.
0: I feel like that song also represents a slight move out of pure disco and towards nodding something more kind of 80s sounding. Like, Enough is Enough feels like it's on the brink of those two things in a way. It
1: does. It does. It does. I mentioned share earlier and it, to me, it's all walking yes, up to Yes, very so like, that, very that. If I could turn back time. <laughs> yeah, totally. Absolutely. Exactly.
0: <laughs> yes. But this is the moment where the general cultural backlash to disco is also beginning, right? I mean, in 1979, 1980, as Bad Girls is the biggest record in the world and as, you know, Off the Wall is the biggest record in the world, and as Diana Ross's incredible disco record is the biggest record in the world, there's also the foment happening that's leading to this disco demolition night. I mean, all of these classic, I find that interesting, that all of these emblematic classic disco albums kind of happen like right here at the end of the disco era. People forget how much space Black Pop
1: was taking up on the charts. You understand that disco was changing the whole neighborhood, country of radio, So relentlessly at this time, and this is when Celestial Radio really ruled, rock stations were shutting down and reopening as, quote unquote, disco stations. So people were literally like, if they didn't want to switch over and become disco jocks, they were fired or they were moved around into less influential spaces within the station. People were taking this very personally. I always say this, but I find it so striking that just at the moment where Black Pop was really taking up so much space on the charts and in American life that all of a sudden it began to be called cheesy and soulless and Mm -hmm. you're such a sellout and Mm -hmm. crossover is terrible right when they began taking up the most space possible that includes Lionel Richie that includes the very beginnings even of Whitney Houston's career on up really through the beginnings of Mariah Carey's career it -hmm. was still looked upon as an ugly move to be the biggest kind of pop star that you could be
0: in your understanding of it is it almost like an overnight phenomenon that it basically goes from being the centerpiece of pop music to being kind of passe I
1: think at the time, I didn't look at it as, this is going to sound weird, as a bad death. Mm. I looked upon it as growth. I looked upon it as maybe disco Finally, being recognized for what it actually is, which Mm -hmm. is just big old pop music. Right,
0: exactly. I see what you're saying. Right.
1: (laughs) With blackness as its base, right? Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. But it's just finally maybe being called what it actually is. As I said, I've never understood or really abided by this term disco. I just don't. So I didn't really look upon it like, oh my God, disco's gone. Wow, that's terrible. That's sad. I looked upon it like, oh my God, we have Michael Jackson and Thriller now. What's going on? You know what I mean? it, It seemed like, you know, what it seemed like it seemed like a proper handoff in track and field right. it seemed like a proper
0: You know what I mean? That's
1: what it seemed like to me.
0: It's really interesting because I think it loops back to I Feel Love, which is that it also was the handoff between pop music being largely something about live instrumentation into pop music being something broadly made in a studio with Mm. machines. And I think that I Feel Love, it's so fascinating, really sits at that nexus point. And that's why Donna Summer is such a powerful linchpin in the history of pop music. I mean, for all the reasons we've been talking about, but I think also that song in particular illustrates an important shift that happened which was that from all of Madonna's records, all of Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis's records with Janet, and even to some degree, Quincy Jones, all are utilizing a lot more kind of like studio elements. It becomes less about the band. You know what I mean? The story Mm -hmm. of the live band playing music and into something that happens in the studio, something that happens on machines. And I think that I Feel Love is... Patient zero for that moment. So Donna was both the sort of last pop star of the pre machine era and the first pop star of the machine era. You know what I mean? It's like a really interesting dichotomy that she plays. So she has a very interesting early 80s. She releases her first post disco record, which is called The Wanderer, which is very poorly received, doesn't nearly match the response that Bad Girls has. And it's also her last record with Giorgio and Pete at the helm. In 82, she releases her self-titled record, which is produced by Quincy Jones, coming off the back of his success with Michael Jackson. You talk about that you have a particular soft spot for the song State of Independence. It's a big part of your chapter. That's a
1: record right there, yes.
0: <laughs> with a big gospel choir in the background that includes every major, like, major celebrity singing yes. background vocals for her. Yes, amazing. Which I thought was like a really nice celebration of mm-hmm. her influence and acknowledgement by her peers on yes. some level. Yes. <laughs> But overall, both of these two records fail to match the success of Bad Girls and of her disco run. And I feel like the vibe that I got from it, just looking back on it, was that it seemed like she perhaps hadn't made the transition properly into the 80s and that she was kind of getting left behind as an emblem of the disco era and wasn't necessarily still seen as a relevant pop star. But in 1983, she releases her last kind of huge record, which is called She Works Hard for the money. Oh yes. So can you talk to me about how she works hard for the money translates whatever the Donna Magic is or maybe presents a new version of Donna for an 80s crowd. I think
1: she just decided she wanted to be a part of everything again. I think she just sort of decided that she
0: didn't want to She wanted
1: I don't to give the know. girls what they
0: wanted. Yes,
1: yes. <laughs> and she didn't want to fade away quietly. Yes. Do you know what I mean? And no, I, not a
0: workhorse like her. I don't yes, think she was ready to go off into the night.
1: I don't think she was either. And the song was also just a perfect encapsulation, really, of her whole career, just the theme of it. Right. I um, was thinking the same thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I yeah. was like,
0: this is her ethos in musical form, almost yes. more so than the ethereal love songs that she was sort of known for. Oh, yeah. This is like a woman that worked hard for her fucking money. She worked hard yes. for the money, man. <laughs>
1: And this was a big record. It was a big song and Mm -hmm. it was kind of everywhere. I think at the time it seemed almost like a comfort to have her back on the radio as much as she had been.
0: You know what I mean? Also, it's important to know that this was the first video by a black female artist that got put into heavy rotation on MTV, so. Oh, you know, I did not know that. Yes, so she had a hit video in the video era, which, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I almost think of the invention of MTV as silent films going into talkies. Like, it's almost like most people got left in the dust. Like, most of the stars of the previous era got kind of iced out because Mm. pop stardom, as I mentioned, turned into an entirely different thing. Like, Madonna, Michael, they totally changed what pop stardom was and made it something way more all-encompassing and a hard missive to fulfill, I think, for a lot of people, especially that didn't grow up with that instinctually being part of their ethos. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. I think it speaks so much to Donna's strength that not only was she able to have a hit outside of the era that she's most widely known for, without the collaborators that she's most widely known to have collaborated with, and I also think it's a funny contrast to some of her more widely known songs, because it's kind of like a very practical brass tax, economical perspective as opposed to like her extravagant yes. real disco yes. anthems. There's yes. something kind of funny about just the fact that it's like, that we're getting down to business and we're going to talk about like life as it really is, whereas her disco anthems feel like an angelic representation of love and life More in so. This way.
1: I do have a soft spot for this record too though, I really do. It's a great record.
0: Okay, so basically like just in terms of talking about Donna's music, she continues to release music throughout the 80s and into the early 90s and she experiences a ton of like label disputes and essentially her commercial power really starts to wane following she works hard for the money Mm -hmm. she gets to a point by the late 80s where she gets dropped from her u.s record label her music's only being released in Europe. But then she steps away essentially in the after mis- Mistaken Identity in the early 90s and her career kind of comes to an end at that point. One question I want to ask you is just this point of controversy about her sort of born-again Christianity and like her comments that she made about the gay community. And she performed at Reagan's inaugural and she kind of like had this semi-conservative like conservative move at some point in the 80s. The inciting comments were something along the lines of at a show in 1983 she said something like you know it's Adam and Eve not Adam and Steve she said something like I've seen the sins of homosexuality and that AIDS are the results of the sins I mean pretty intensely derogatory things and homophobic things to say about a community that made up like a huge portion of her fan base
1: it contributed to her seeming out of touch, not just with the mood of the nation, but very right. particular, the queer audience, absolutely. It seemed very a slap in the face. There were times when she then tried to backtrack and say, yes. in effect, something like, I didn't mean it like that, though, which is, right. <laughs> which, is kind of, which is always kind of like, girl, but you said it. Like, yeah. And you want to give it to, oh, she's of a certain generation, or, oh, she was having a moment, or, oh, but I'll be honest, it's hard for me to write it off as, not having meaning. I don't know if it's that she got sad as she grew up and got older and pop. I don't know if she got mad. I don't know. But I view it as a very ugly moment for such a great lady. I agree. And I think about, and I write about it in, shine bright I was talking about Thank God It's Friday and in the movie her character is trying to get her demo played by this DJ and the DJ Mm -hmm. was portrayed by a guy named Ray Vite, and he ended up dying at the hands of law enforcement here in Los Angeles right Mm -hmm. at the time when he and Donna were very great friends Mm -hmm. and she had a recording studio here in Los Angeles and she held a press conference there and she spoke out against the way in which he died and Mm. she called him her brother in Christ and she She was very angry and sounding almost like civil rights activist Mm -hmm. you know about how could this happen to Mm -hmm. this wonderful man so then my thought is well where is all that energy for the queer space ma'am when they've really been out buying your records and dancing to your music and purchasing the remixes and cosplaying you and Mm -hmm. giving your legacy life where is that activism energy in that moment and it it makes me upset because so I know you have it in you because you showed it when your friend died at the hands of law enforcement so where yeah. is it now so to speak so as I said it's an ugly moment for a gray lady and there was a backlash to her for that reason and I think yeah in some ways her legacy is damaged by it her legacy is massive and it is not as uplifted as it should be mm-hmm. and she has Laid the blueprint for anybody that aims to own the pop space. But there was backlash on her legacy because of that.
0: You know, it's interesting too because it feels like it was a marked shift. In that live album I was talking about, she says at one point, and this was recorded in 1979. So you can only imagine the context that she was saying this. It touched me as a gay man when I heard her say it. So she's introducing some song, I forget what it is, but it's some song that's explicitly about loving a man. And we know that Donna has many songs Mm -hmm. (laughs) that are explicitly about. Loving a man. And yes. she says very sweetly when she's introducing the song, she says, quote, ladies, some of you might relate to this, and also maybe some of you men will relate to this too. Mm, okay. And I just thought to myself, that's so touching to think about her publicly acknowledging us in 79 in too, 1979. Like you said. Yeah, yeah.
3: You know. I just want to say this. This is something I think most of you ladies will identify with. And maybe some of you men, too. Someday he'll come along.
0: And so obviously there was a shift that happened and, and we know what religious fundamentalism can do to people's minds. So it is important to note that she did become an active born again Christian in the mm-hmm. 1980s. So who knows, but I just felt like I couldn't go through a conversation with her without at least bringing that part of it up. Cause mm-hmm. as you said, I do think it has had an effect on her legacy and I think so and is an ugly part of it, but does not diminish the myriad accomplishments and just, utter panoply of incredible music and spirit that she left behind I guess my last question before we talk about the pantheon is, how has Donna's legacy evolved over time? Like, do you think, thanks to critics such as yourselves, thanks to poptimism, thanks to the way that we maybe are beginning to rectify some of the wrongs in the past in terms of how we've treated black female pop stars, has her legacy grown in stature, do you feel like? Do you feel like she's beginning to get the respect she deserves? She was posthumously inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Like, are there things that you feel like have sort of occurred in the last few years, maybe in particular, that have caused her legacy to be potentially restored to its rightful place?
1: I think the pendulum is swinging back a bit. I do. Mm -hmm. I think so many of the most popular singers today have started talking about her more than pop singers of the past have spoken about. I can think very particularly of Brandy. I can think very particularly of Mm. Kelly Rowland, who talk about her as like such an ultimate
0: influence in their lives. Who needs to play her in the movie, I think, as you mentioned. That is a perfect casting. (laughs) It has has to to happen. happen. It has to
1: happen. It has to happen. Mm -hmm. I really feel like the pendulum is starting to swing back. People are really starting to realize too, I think, just with the advent of streaming, like it's much easier to just get down a rabbit hole really quickly and it's like yeah. wait a second who is this lady? Mm-hmm. Oh this is her? Mm-hmm. Oh my god and then you get onto the, the internet rabbit holes and it's like she sold this many records she did mm-hmm. this many things oh my god she sang with Barbara Streisand oh my god she brought the first black female orgasm to light um, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean in, in recorded history let me find out I mean that's yeah. a real punk rock thing to do Donna Summer oh, yeah. oh, so sure. it is beginning to swing back I think also her style is being reclaimed you know mm-hmm. her energy just the pendulum is swinging back man it really is and I for one the whole rock hall thing I, I'm fascinated with awards and award speeches and
0: you say it's imperfect but it's all we have it's all we have
1: man it's mm-hmm. all we have mm-hmm. and I think that it, the fact that she was overlooked in life to be inducted into the rock hall honestly it makes me emotional yeah it's just so clickish. In that organization. And so raucous. And so raucous. The fact that she wasn't able, even with her many, many, many awards, that she wasn't able in life to Mm. have that moment, Mm -hmm. it's just very mean to me.
0: Yeah, I agree. She didn't get her flowers. She
1: did not. And so I think, in a way, that moment, though... Contributed to people taking her back into consideration because her family and her husband have been very vocal about it, about that it just wasn't cool mm-hmm. and that she should have been in the Rock Hall. And I think what they have done has mattered, and they should feel very proud, actually, mm-hmm. of putting Donna Summers, Ladonna, Adrian Gaines's name mm-hmm. back in everybody's mouth.
0: Yeah, amen. I also can't help but think about the fact that we're living through yet another disco revival in pop music. We have Dua Lipa, we've got Lady Gaga, we've got Beyonce, of course, sampling her yet again. We've got Lizzo all out here making smash hit disco songs. And that all stands in Donna Summer's legacy and she suffered quite a lot of bullets for us to be able to celebrate disco music whether we think of it as real or not that movement was a glorious moment in popular music that be celebrated as truly. such and she was the queen of it truly. and none of these artists would really exist without her no modern pop star truly I really feel this way would exist in the way that we think about them without her My last question for you is what tier do you think Donna Summer belongs in, in the pop pantheon? I'm slightly torn between tier one and tier two. And the only reason that I am is because in tier one, we're often dealing with artists that were able to maintain their relevance over many, many decades and through numerous reinventions. So, like you think about Michael, it's like you've got the child stardom era, you've got the 80s era, you've got this long spanning career that survived a lot of different sort of modalities in pop music. With Donna, I feel my only holdback from putting her in tier one is that essentially the run of hits was 10 years long and she did have trouble kind of like for reasons that were largely outside of her control. Let's make sure that we issue that caveat kind of had trouble converting beyond that period. And so that's the part of me that's like her influence definitely feels like it puts her in that top tier. But for some reason, for me, I feel like a little bit inclined to put her in tier two.
1: Well, I think that the only solution is that we go out drinking and just battle it out. in conversation. <laughs> <laughs> That's really. The, I'm down. Are, the you only a, way out. are you in Are you in LA? I am in LA.
0: Girl, I'm, you you <laughs> say the word, I'm gonna be there.
1: I mean, I can see what you're saying. I can, yeah. but I think that I add weight to especially the German era. I add weight to that, and I think that counts as an era. Mm-hmm. So then, if you count that as an era, and then you count the sort of American disco era, and then mm-hmm. you count that last—you don't want to call it a sputter—but she works hard for the money moment. Yes. Then I feel like we 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 got three eras. Yeah. We got it. Yeah. And, I, and, and, I, and I'm not saying I'm not standing on a very skinny line. I'm standing on a very skinny line. <laughs> but here's the thing. I'm standing on it. I'm standing I get you. on it. I yeah. get you.
0: I mean, the influence is so incredibly yes. widespread mm-hmm. that it's hard to say that, like, she isn't in this upper echelon. You know what I mm-hmm. mean?
1: I also give, I think, weight to The Records Broken, Yes. I give weight to two double albums.
0: Yes, right. That
1: go number one. Like, Mm -hmm. really, no one else has done that. When I say no one, I mean like no one. Like no one. Like no one. White, black, Latin, Asian, man, woman. No one has done that. And so I got to give some weight to that.
0: I just do. And let's just say that you could not tell the story of popular music, even in the most broad strokes possible. Mm-mm. You'd have to talk about her. Like, you would. I think she would be one of the, let's say, 25 artists in pop history that you'd have to bring up. You have to. Right? You
1: have to. She kicked yeah. open the doors and she ushered folks through.
0: <sighs> I mean, uh, look, I... I feel really torn, but I do think I ultimately fall on the end of the spectrum that she's in tier two, near the top. I just think that the actual metrics of the way that the Pantheon works, it just feels too uh much of a stretch to put her in one just based on the achievements of everybody else in the category. And her period of hit making was under ten years. And it is one of the best Hit making careers ever and I think Love To Love You Baby and I Feel Love in particular are two of the most critical pop songs of all time which kind of extends her higher than maybe she would be anyway like I think the two is kind of like the stretch that I think she deserves so I think ultimately even though it's hard I'm gonna put her in tier two and look, I respect your position and I think you need to stand firm where you are and I'll just- I'm standing on it, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, so my final question, what is an underrated Donna Summer song? Something we haven't spoken about so far till we could send the podcast out of. Maybe a pet favorite of yours. Something under the radar. Something that people need to be put onto that they wouldn't be put onto by the This is Donna Summer playlist on Spotify. <laughs> we already mentioned it. Which and is? it's. State of independence. State of independence. Oh yeah, we gotta go out and state of independence.
1: There's a little bit of the strobe-ness in it. There's a little bit of the like Europeanness in it, but then you're just getting pounded with the Quincy Jonesiness of it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very Quincy.
1: And then you have in the all-star group of background slash foreground singers, yes. you have everybody from Michael McDonald to Stevie Wonder, Christopher Cross, Brenda Russell, Diana Ross, Dionne mm-hmm. Warwick, Lionel Richie, Lionel Michael Ritchie. Jackson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's we are the world before it's we are the world.
0: Yeah, but way better. Yes, but way better. It's an amazing record. I love what you said about bad girl being a state of freedom or a state of independence. So maybe Mm -hmm. it serves also as a mission statement for Donna Summer and like what she represents in terms of her ethos as an artist. All right, so let's go out on state of independence. Danielle Smith, thank you so, so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I had the most fun. Please ask me back and thank you again.
0: All right, y'all, there you have it. That is our episode on the queen of disco herself, Donna Summer, a certified tier two megastar. The judgment is rendered, I want to say. Thank you so, so much to the wonderful Danielle Smith for being such a fabulous guest. Please send in your final questions for the mailbag episode to poppantheonpod at gmail.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to PopPantheon Pantheon wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at potpantheonpod and DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V. Hop in the Discord. Check out our Spotify playlist. Come to Gorgeous Gorgeous and see me DJ on Friday, September 23rd. Go to our website, poppantheonpod.com. Get yourself a niche legend dad hat in the shop section and fill out the survey in the survey section and let us know what you're thinking about the show. We'd really appreciate both of those things. I want to also say thank you so, so, so much to the wonderful Russ Martin for everything he does to make this show happen every week. And until we meet again, have a wonderful life. Bye-bye.